John chapter 12 says, And then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, first recorded words of Judas, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This said he, John writing as an old man, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and he bare that which was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she done this, she's kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. And much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he raised from the dead. I guess so. I would like to have seen that as well. So we have this scene, John tells us, six days before the Passover. So just we'll talk about it more as we go on. Passover is always on the 14th of Nisan. We back it up six days. He came on the eighth day. The ninth day was the Sabbath when the, this dinner happened. The tenth day was the triumphal entry when the lambs were being presented for the sacrifice that week on Passover. So it's, it's interesting. It all rolls out in a specific way. And it's interesting that Jesus spends his last Sabbath with his friends in Bethany. His next Sabbath, he'll be in the tomb and his spirit will be in heaven. And then he rises from the dead the next day. So amongst men, he came to walk among us. He put on human skin. This is where he spends his last Sabbath. No doubt he had come from Jericho. We're told that he had eaten at the house of Zacchaeus the night before. And as he made the pilgrimage with other pilgrims that were coming to the Passover feast and came up the, the hill, the rest of them went across the Mount of Olives and in Jerusalem. But Jesus and his disciples pulled aside in Bethany and they saw that. Those are the ones who came back to see not the Pharisees and the Sadducees who wanted to kill him. It just as many of the Jews came to see. So they took note because he had done certain miracles among them, joined them from Ephraim where he had been for probably a month and a half, two months, made the pilgrimage with them, crossed over the Jordan, came up then from Jericho. And we're told in the other gospels, he did miracles during that time. So the pilgrims are stirred. They're all amazed. But Jesus pulls aside and he comes to Bethany, the place that he loved, a place that he would retire this Passion Week many times. And uh, this dinner takes place. Now, Matthew tells us that this dinner happened, and Mark, at the house of Simon the leper. Now, in your mind, you can, you can remember that, but we know this. His name was Simon, used to be a leper. 
because if it was Simon still a leper, nobody would have come to his house for dinner. So this is Simon who had been a leper, and the dinner is at his house. Now, we don't know. Some try to say, well, Simon was Martha's husband. There's no biblical evidence for that. We can surmise. Some try to say, well, Simon was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We have no record of that either in the scripture. We know this. Simon had been a leper. That's what we do know. And he's called Simon the leper to identify him because there were other Simons. It's like Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, we're told, to identify him. Simon, a common name, but he is Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of Psalm, uh, Jonah. And then Matthew, the publican, that's Matthew who used to be a publican, is just identifying the person for us. And here it's Simon who used to be a leper, and the feast is at his house. Um, They had come up on the 8th, before it became dark, pulled aside to this house. As it got dark, the Sabbath began, no doubt. They ate some things, relaxed, and it was no doubt the, the next day when Sabbath ended where they have this big feast that takes place. We have a cast of characters that are brought here before us. I, I think, what was it like to sit there with this crew? You imagine. Uh, there was uh, the 12 disciples. There was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There was Jesus. There was Simon the leper. There were at least 17 people, if you can imagine. Well, you can. You just said Thanksgiving dinner. 17 people there at the house. And... Uh, Jesus is at the table with them and looking around. There's Simon Peter, who's going to hack somebody's ear off this week. You know, Peter, James, and Don are going to fall asleep three times while I'm praying in Gethsemane. Uh, There's James, who's going to be the first martyr. There's John, who's going to live to be on Patmos. You know, he must be looking. Judas, he knew, would be the betrayer. And Thomas would be famous for doubting and asking questions. You know, imagine he's with them. And then he's also there with Simon the leper. Now, understand, in this culture, no doubt this man, once he was examined by the priest, and he was proclaimed unclean. A leper never had a disease. A leper was never healed. A leper was always cleansed. And he was unclean. No doubt at that point he has to live in a leper colony, not in his house. And any time he was out and he got within a certain amount of, of steps or yards or cubits of an individual, he had a cry, unclean, unclean. And he had spent time in his life doing that, unclean, unclean. Until one day... Somewhere, his path crossed the path of the man from Galilee, of the master. And he must have said to Jesus what other lepers said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus must have answered what he had answered other lepers, I will be thou clean. And he was cleansed, made clean. 
He, of course, then had to go to the temple and have the priests re-examine him, go through. It's a beautiful ritual he had to go through. So he comes then back to his home. Martha is there. And it says, Martha served. Now, Martha is the grumbler, the complainer. You know, Lazarus doesn't say much. We get not have a word from him. He's there. Mary, who's kind of the hippie, she's the contemplative one. It's just this crew, but it gives us an interesting picture. Martha served. Now, it tells us in Luke chapter 10, he draws a picture of this woman. The first time we hear of Bethany, it says, it came to ha- they entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. So it was Martha's house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And Martha was cumbered about, overwhelmed, cumbered about with much serving. Same word here at the dinner, Martha served. And she came unto him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, don't you care? No, people only did that in the first century. Nobody ever does that now. Lord, don't you care? And, and, and said, my, my sister, she's a hippie. She left me alone here to serve. Why don't you yell at her and tell her to come help? So Martha's fastidious. It's her house. She's cleaning. But she's, she's caught up in the situation. And there's tension between him, her and Mary. Now, all of that has ended because their brother had died. And when their brother died... Their differences were less influential than their commonality. They both lost their brother. Their hearts were both broken. They both served him on his deathbed. They both took care of him and so forth. But now they're at a table. And it says Lazarus was there at the table. And the Greek tells us they were reclining. They're laying on their arm. They're eating with their right hand. They're laying at the table. John was probably leaning on Jesus' breast like he did at the Last Supper. And Lazarus is there, imagine, at the table. And Martha, it says, served. It's an imperfect tense. It means that she served and she continued serving. Because when your dead brother is one of the guests that you're serving, it changes your attitude a little bit, right? The guy was dead for four days. Decomposition had had set in. He stunk. It says he stunk. He he was decomposed. His eyeballs were gone. His brain had turned to water. His heart had dissolved. And Jesus performs a miracle and raises him from the dead. And now Martha is serving. The kitchen has become her cloister, her sanctuary. Her serving now has become her ministry done unto this one who is the raiser and the conqueror of death. And she's, she's there and how that changes your life. And ladies, you know, if, if your brother was raised from the dead, you would serve in a much different way. And gentlemen, but remember this, we do have a brother that was raised from the dead. Our older brother, Jesus, we've been adopted into that family. We are joint heirs with Christ and our older brother, who was dead, was raised on the third day, and serving him is also an honor. And this, you know, you get the visual here. He's putting that all in perspective. And Lazarus is there. Now, this ain't the old Lazarus. This is the new Lazarus. Uh, 
new attitude, new thankfulness in his heart, new smile, new sense of humor. And I always think, did he have frackled, you know, did he have moles before when he died? Did he have blotches? Jesus recreates him. So I'm thinking, is his skin clear? Is the complexion is clear now? This is the new lad, new and improved Lazarus. He's there at the table. Uh, Mary is there. And Mary is the one who's thinking. She has a sense. And Martha's not complaining about what Mary's doing at this point in time. It's interesting. The master is there. And it tells us that Mary, in verse 3, it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then took Mary... Matthew 26, Mark 14, don't tell us her name. Because Matthew and Mark wrote while Mary was still alive, there was persecution in Jerusalem from the Jews, there was persecution of Judea by the Romans, and it's John writing 60 years later, probably after Patmos on the Isle in, in Ephesus, is the elder there, an old man, and he puts his quill to the page, and he writes about this day. And he says, and and the aroma of that devotion filled the house. Our memory is attached to smells somehow. Again, we may not mention it last week. You go over your, you know, you're somewhere and you smell mothballs. You think of your aunt or your grandma right away. Just memories come back. And John is there writing, and he can smell that day. He can smell the scene. Mary brings this box. Mark calls it. It's alabaster and is filled with spikenard. Now look, very important. This is not the woman depicted in Luke chapter 7. There we have another woman that washes his feet, anoints his feet, wipes with her hair. We are there in the house of Simon the Pharisee. This is Simon the leper. We are in a different part of the country in Luke 7. Um, The woman who comes there and anoints Jesus' feet is famous for immorality. This is Mary, famous for her piety. Jesus complains there, nobody washed my feet when I came to the house. You're picking on this woman. And I'm sure as Jesus came into the home of Simon the leper, his feet were washed and the common, you know, courtesies were extended. So this is not that Mary. It's not that house. It's a different time, different place. This is Mary of Bethany. And she comes to him and she has this ointment. All three gospel writers tell us, Mark, uh, Matthew says it was very precious. Mark says very precious. John says very costly. And, and Judas is the one who tells us the value. He said, couldn't this have been sold for 300 denarii? Now, a denarii was a day's wage. For a laborer in that culture. So 300 denarii is a year's wage. What is a year's wage for a laborer today? 50 grand? 60 grand? What is it? This alabaster cruise box of spikenard was worth 50 grand today, 60 grand. It's about 
three quarters of a pound. Imagine that, ladies. Wouldn't you love to have three quarters of a pound of rare perfume that was worth 60 grand? You'd be putting that behind your ears and, you know, just she has this. We're not told whether it's because the family was well off or had it been a family heirloom that had been passed down and would have been passed down again if she hadn't broke it. We don't know. But she has a sense of what's going on. And she comes and she breaks this alabaster container of oil of this spikenard. Matthew Mark says she poured it on his head, but three quarters of a pound, there was plenty left over. And then she pours it on his feet and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now the spikenard is imported from the mountains in northern India. It was the purest spikenard of the day. It was extremely expensive. Uh, there are records of Cambyses and other royals and queens and kings in this day giving this kind of spikenard occasionally as a gift. Uh, this came and it was very expensive. And if you want to get the visual here, this particular spikenard was rose red. It was crimson. And she breaks this and pours it on his head. And you can see the red running down onto his shoulders. And then she pours it on his feet. And she's wiping his feet with her hair. And all this brilliant red is in the process. And there's an aroma to it that's beautiful. She wipes his feet with her hair. We're told in chapter 13, verse 4, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he says, knowing things were done, the Father had put all things into his hands. He girded himself and he took a basin and a towel. Because when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he used a towel. When Mary washed the Savior's feet, she used her hair, no towel. And understand in the culture for a Jewish woman to let down her hair was indecent. Paul says the glory of a woman is her hair. And all women in this culture kept their hair braided up, except when they were home with their husband. This woman, Mary, lets down her hair publicly. Some of the guys were probably aghast. But she gets down and begins to wipe his feet then with her hair at the table. And of course, what the Lord is putting before us is... She lays before his feet the most valuable thing that she has. She is willing to let go of, and are we, am I, the most valuable thing that I have? When I'm alone with Jesus, do I think, Lord, I need to let go of this. I need to just lay this at your feet. There isn't anything you're not worthy of. I need to let go of this. I need to let go of it. And when that kind of attitude is in the home, in the kitchen, in the church, there's an aroma to it. If you truly are the kind of Christian that is willing to lay everything at his feet, everything, your Maserati, your Lamborghini, you know, uh, your multi-million dollar home, whatever it is. If you're willing to lay it at his feet, the most valuable thing you have, there's an aroma to that. Other Christians can smell that. There's something about that. In fact, Paul tells us unto those that are saved, we have a savor, a smell of life unto life. Those that are perishing, we have a savor of death to them. 
Because we're talking about Jesus and forgiveness. And the house, John's thinking, was filled. I remember that aroma. It filled the house. The red on his shoulders and hair. The red on his feet. And the aroma that filled the room, the place we were in. And there's a savor that we should have in our homes and our families and so forth. And it should be noticeable. It, it, it should be seen and smelled and heard. And the aroma of that fills the house. Judas. Now, he's going to say the first, you know, he's the son of Simon. It makes it clear Judas Iscariot from Kirioth, which is the only Judean out of the 12. He's going to make a complaint that sounds very spiritual, very righteous, taking care of the poor. And look, John's going to say as an old man, you know, he said that not because he cared for the poor. He was a thief and he had his hand in the bag. I don't know if John felt that way at the dinner. You see, at the dinner, Judas had so well disguised himself, they trusted him with the bag. All of them. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me this night, they didn't all look at Judas. You know, he said, one of you is going to betray me. They all said, is it I? Is it I? Nobody said, it's got to be Judas. That guy's, you know. So he had disguised himself so well. And the complaint he comes up with, he said, should not this have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? John said he didn't care for the poor. He had his hand in the bag. He wanted to care for poor Judas. He said, you're stealing from the poor. Put it in my bag so I can steal from the poor. And look, it's something that goes on in the church today. Understand this. Devotion is costly. It's going to cost you if you're that devoted to lay the most precious thing you have at the feet of Jesus. There are going to be those who misunderstand you're going to be misunderstood. There are going to be those who criticize you for doing that. And this is the most precious thing that you have. Now, no one should sit here and think, well, I don't have anything like that. I don't have a box of spike nard. I, the, look, the widow at the treasury put in two mites. And Jesus said to his disciples, did you see this? She put in more than they all. The combination of all the other offerings that were being given in gold and shekels and silver. This poor widow put in two mice and he said it was more than the rest. Because when Jesus measures something that we give to him, he doesn't measure it by its worth. He measures it by its cost. And what it cost that widow, that was all she had. It was her whole life. She laid her whole life at the feet of, of the God of Abraham. And we have two mites to give. Jesus said, anyone who gives someone a cup of cool water in my name is going to receive to a disciple, disciple's reward. Jesus never minimizes because of the value of what we put in front of him. But he, what, he exalts that giving by the cost. What does it cost us to lay the most precious thing before our Savior and to take our hands off of it and let go of it and to do that with delight, to do it with delight. Judas gripes, and it tells us that some of the other disciples in Matthew and Mark go along with him. Some of the other ones start to gripe. We're not told, was John one of the gripers? 
You know, Peter Gripe, probably, that seems like right up his alley. You know, and why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? The church is full of this today. You do anything that seems lavish in your own personal relationship with Jesus, somebody's going to criticize. And critics always find other critics. They want a posse right away. As soon as you start to criticize, and usually critics know a bunch of critics. So they form a little posse right away, and the disciples start griping too. You know, what, what are you doing? You know, this was waste. You should have been taken to the poor. You know how many missionaries you could have supported with this? You, you know how many Bibles you could have bought? You know how many tracts you could have given out? You know how many ministries you could have supported? You know, people are doing that today. On TV, watch them. They're begging. You need to give. You need to give because of this. You need to give because of that. In fact, I know for a fact some of those posers demographically, they will study an area and they hear that in this particular area of the country, more money is given when crippled children are placed on the screen, so they'll put up kids in wheelchairs. They know in this part of the country, more money is given because someone is presented with cancer and they'll put somebody with cancer on the screen and say, you need to give so we can take care of this person. And it's the spirit of Judas because they want you to give so they can steal from the poor. Because the same guys that are telling you that have a set of Rolex watches, $3,000 sneakers. They, they have a, a Bentley or a Rolls. They have their own plane. And they're telling you, you need to give to them instead of robbing from the poor. While they're robbing from poor old you. It's all over. Now look, there's abuses on both ends of that. You know, we can ignore the responsibility we have towards the less fortunate, that can be abused. But it's never abused when we're, when we're laying at the feet of our Savior. We're putting it there. And again, it can be abused on the other side of it for opulence, ostentatious, you know. But here, he pulls out his tongue and lets it loose on Mary. And I love the fact that Jesus says to Judas and the other disciples that were griping, let her alone. You know, isn't that wonderful? Let her alone. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I wonder how many times somebody was saying something about me or you and heard the Spirit say, let him alone. You know, I like that. You know. Mary is silent. She doesn't defend herself. My pastor, Chuck Smith, used to say all the time, because we would hear people were doing this or they were gossiping and slandering them, taking this, doing that. And we'd say, Chuck, you know, why don't you say something? And he said, you know, I learned a long time ago. The Lord told me, Chuck, if you want to defend yourself, go on. You can defend yourself. But if you let me do it, I'll do a way better job. And he said, I've just learned to let the Lord defend me, you know. And Mary does that here. She's silent. No doubt she's thinking something like Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And the Lord defends her as he does us. And he says, you don't understand what she's done. She's done this for my burial. Matthew and Mark say, and what she's done here, wherever the gospel is preached in this world, what she's done is going to be told. And here we are this morning, proving it, by the way. Every century, every nation, Jesus says, you can't separate what she's done from what I'm going to do. 
the gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection. Wherever the record of what I'm done is told, the record of what she's done will be told as well. And Jesus said, because she's anointed me for my burial. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, Mary of Bethany is not at the crucifixion. Mary of Bethany is not there resurrection morning with the other Mary and Mary Magdalene. And it says they came to anoint the body of Jesus on that morning. And when they got there, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and they never got to anoint the body of Jesus. So the person who got to anoint the body of Jesus was Mary of Bethany who anointed him a week before his crucifixion. And it was the only anointing he had relative to his burial. And he says that here. She's anointed me for my burial. The idea, it speaks of laying the body out to put it in the tomb. She's anointed me for this. She knew. I've been telling you guys for a couple of years, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The elders are going to take me. They're going to crucify me on rising on the third day. It's been going in one ear and out the other. But Mary has taken hold of the thing. She sat at my feet in their home, and she heard me. Martha was complaining, but she listened to me talk about heavenly things, things from another world. And she realizes I talk about the fact I was going to lay down my life. And she sat at my feet. She fell at my feet weeping again when I came to Bethany to open the tomb and set her brother free from death. And Mary thought those beautiful feet, the paths they've walked, the weariness they've carried, that Jehovah would put on human skin and walk among us to the point of being weary. And now those feet are at the table. And she falls down and she anoints them. She wipes them with her hair. And Jesus said, she's done this unto my burial. She was the anointer. No one else got to do that. And wherever this gospel is preached, this is going to be told. Now, he says, the poor you have with you always. Me, you don't. In fact, it's interesting there. It says the poor article, the poor, the poor. And then in the Greek, it says the me. And they're both emphatic, and it sets them in comparison. What he's saying is, you always have the poor. They're going to be there. Karl Marx had no idea what he's talking about. You know, in Leviticus, I mean, in Deuteronomy, it says this. It says, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command thee, saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to the needy in the land. You know, God allows that. He says, the poor will always be among you. You know, he, he tells the children of Israel when they are, come into the promised land that he left enemies there, that the children of Israel would learn to do battle. Because Moses and Joshua knew it was with a supernatural involvement that they had any victory. And the next generation had to learn that. And it says here, the poor you have also, always, the church has always been and should continue to be the place where the less fortunate can find refuge and care. He doesn't diminish the care for the poor in any way. He just says you're always going to be able to do that. But what she's done, it has to happen. It's now or never. And she realized it. The bigger question, you know, here is if the Lord is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he is, right? 
if he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, we know that, why did he let Judas hold the bag? He already said, you know, one of you is going to betray me. He said, have not I chosen you twelve? One of you is a devil. And he let the devil be the treasurer? Why, did, why in the world was somebody who's all-powerful and all-knowing let Judas, who was pilfering the bag, be the one to hold the bag? Why would he do that? Do you know? I don't either. But I, know, but I do know it's part of the bigger question. Why does the same God who's all-powerful and all-knowing allow thieves and deniers to fill the world today? Why does he allow the prejudice and the stealing and the hatred and the war? Why does he allow the things that Asaph addressed in Psalm 73? We know that God is good, and yet the wicked are flourishing. Why does he allow that? That's the same question, really. The question about Judas is just part of a bigger question. And we have to believe that in his wisdom, you know, I got saved in 1972. And I was glad 1972 that Jesus hadn't returned because I'd have been lost. I'd have been gone. But then after I got saved in 1972, then I said, Lord, you can come now. Come get us out of here. The heck with you all, you know, the rest of the world. Now you can take us home. But Jesus knows that every thief and every denier, every antagonist, will still be reached by his grace in some way or another. And it will be their decision to be the rejecter or acceptor. And he then, through eternity, will be just in that final decision because they rejected and the reason they've entered eternally into outer darkness and eternal fire is because they rejected the grace of God. So he allows it to roll along. He allowed it with Judas. Somewhere in his counsels, his wisdom, and I'm not there and I understand, he's allowed it. And he allowed it here with Judas. And then it tells us, and there were many that came. No, no doubt the pilgrims who came up the mountain with him and watched him turn aside in Bethany. They came back, Bethany within two miles of Jerusalem. Uh, hundreds of thousands would come to the Passover feast, one of the mandatory feasts. They knew he was in Bethany. They came back and they found him. They said they didn't come back just to find Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days. And here they must have been looking in the window. They must have been around the house. There's the master. Simon, who used to be a leper, it's his house. They're probably saying, are you sure? He's not a leper anymore? You know, you know there's Martha, Mary. There's the new Lazarus is there, the new model. You know, what was upgraded? I don't know. Certainly his attitude was upgraded. His sense of humor had changed. His smile was different. He's a new man. And the stories unfolded before us in the context of devotion. No, the Lord doesn't want devotions. We should have them. What he wants is devotion. You know, my wife doesn't want devotions. 
I spoke to you for an hour this morning. What do you want? I'll see you tomorrow morning for an hour. No, she wants devotion, relationship with your children. They don't want devotions. They want devotion. And our Savior doesn't want an hour, half hour with him in the morning and then ignoring him the rest of the day. He wants the best that we have. He wants our heart at his feet. He wants us to commune with him. You know, been with the Lord for 50 years now. And I, I remember as a young Christian, I was good at, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all. And I'm still good at that. Saying, Lord, forgive me. I did this wrong. I thought the wrong thing. I got a bad attitude. But over the years, there's something else that's become part of that. And that is, Lord, will you forgive me if I hurt your feelings? Lord Jesus, will you forgive me if this makes you sad? Lord, will you forgive me if I'm not laying my best at your feet? Not that it's sin, but he has emotion. He's giving us this record of himself sitting at this table with these human beings, all different. He's the savior, savior, the helper, the servant of all of them, the greatest servant, greater than Martha serving at the table. And what he asks of you and I is to live the kind of life where he's more important than everything else that we have, that we possess. Because it, if we don't, then those possessions will possess us. If we lay them at his feet, he possesses us. Sometimes we get more caught up with the gift than with the giver. And of course, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they weren't doing that anymore. How could they? You know, how could they? Martha's whistling while she works. Serving there, looking at her living brother, laying at the table there, eating with Jesus. How remarkable. Uh, so for you and I, look, it's costly. It's costly. It may be wonderful between you and Jesus, but somebody else may criticize it. Some, some other people, you're going to be misunderstood. There may come a measure of heat because of it. But if you listen closely, there's a voice that says, let him alone. Let him alone. And John is writing this as an old man. Judas has committed suicide. All of the other apostles have been martyred. His friends. His brother. Martha is dead. Mary is dead. That's why he writes her name. You know, as an old man, he's not afraid. She's gone. Lazarus, who tradition tells us, had become the bishop of the church in Cyprus. I would love to have listened to some of his sermons about resurrection, that's for sure. Uh, they're all gone. And John is alone. John is the only one. He's alone. Except for one. That has not changed. He says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And John, this old, ancient man, is putting his quill to the page and saying, let me tell you about this supper. Let me tell you about the aroma that filled the room. I can still smell it. 
I can still see that crimson red running down his cheeks and his shoulders on his feet. I can still hear that thief griping. We had trusted him then. He was no good. He was a thief. I can still hear the master's voice, let her alone. Wherever this gospel is preached in all the world, what she's done will be told. And it was true in John's day. It's our, true in our day as well. The Lord puts this picture in front of us. And he wants us to glean from it what we can. I think if you sit alone with it, it speaks from so many different angles. How remarkable, though. The Lord's last week on earth, he goes to his friends, human friends, sinners that aren't saved yet. He sits with family and friends that he has, and he finds soulless as the shadow of the cross is across his path at this point in time. And he finds the same solace sitting with us today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does he find solace in your house? Is your house a place of devotion? Have you laid at his feet the most important things in your life? Has the aroma of that filled your environment? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you this day, Lord. And uh, Lord, we, we read through this and the words kind of rise off the page, Lord. And the, you turn our ears into eyes, Lord. You give us, Lord, that which speaks and continues to speak to us, Lord. So you know us all as individuals. You knew all of those there at the dinner as individuals. You ministered to all of them relative to who they were. Lord, we know that you're the same, that you do that with us as well. Your blood-bought sons and daughters. So, Lord, let us as individuals garner from the passage, Lord, from the picture, from that dinner, Lord, what you would have us take away. And protect it, Lord. Let it bear fruit, Lord Jesus. Let this seed be sown into our lives where... It doesn't fall on the rocks. It doesn't fall where the enemy will steal it. It doesn't fall to a shallow place, but a place, not to a place where the weeds will choke it. But, Lord, let it bring forth this study today, these things. Let it bring forth in our lives 30, 60, and 100-fold. And we believe we're praying according to your will. Amen.